stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR. Well, welcome back. Rob Breckenridge filling in for, well, I, I don't know. But I do know that Angela Cocott is uh, filling in for Rob Breckenridge. And uh, <laughs> she'll be in after 1230 this afternoon. Hello, Angela. Hey, Rob. It, it reminds me of the days I used to watch soap operas. The role of Rob Breckenridge is being played by Angela Cocott for the next two weeks because the role of the next host of the morning is being played by Rob Breckenridge. How are you doing? Uh, well, doing good. <laughs> doing good. So speaking of soap operas, I understand you're talking uh, TV shows, comfort TV shows. We, we talk a lot about comfort food during the pandemic. In those early days, everyone was baking bread and making casseroles. Well, over the last number of months, a lot of people have turned to comfort reruns. And uh, I mean, I don't want to put you on the spot, but if there was a show or a movie you've watched more than once... What would it be? Uh, well, in terms of movies, I would say the movie I've watched the most, and I will watch it whenever it's on TV at any point in the movie, and it's uh, the movie Goodfellas. Oh, Goodfellas. Yeah, I think I've heard you quote Goodfellas a few, <laughs> few times. And so, I mean, if it comes to TV shows, I want people to start thinking of maybe a TV show that they've watched. I can go way back to, well, you know what? I'll wait until around 1230 to share my comfort rerun. But the reason we're doing it, you know, in unpredictable times, we like to go to something that is predictable. Um, along with that, I'll also be talking about the R factor. We talk about so many different numbers when it comes to hospitalization rates, positivity yep. rates. We don't talk a lot about the R number and the R factor. And I'll be speaking with one researcher who says policymakers health officials should be keeping a closer eye on the R factor. And I know you've talked about it a lot, but uh, a bit of background on that and why it's so important during this time. Sounds good. Thanks, Ange. Ange will be in uh, 12.30 to 3.30 this afternoon. Oh, by the way, just to look ahead a little bit later on this afternoon, uh, Dr. Dina Hinshaw is going to be providing an update at 4 p.m. today. So if you, you tune into those, uh, just uh, make note of that. It's going to be a little bit later today, 4 o'clock, an update from the Chief Medical Officer of Health. All right, so looking ahead to uh, this summer, and I think there's certainly a hope, maybe not universal, but certainly a hope that uh, the Calgary Stampede is going to be back. It's such a, a big part of the city and such a big event for the sport of rodeo, sport that certainly has its, its followers and has its detractors, as I'm sure we're all well aware. And, and certainly, I think, you know, in fairness of, of, of rodeo, that, that animal welfare is a priority. But there is an interesting question then. And is it, is it answerable? How do the animals feel about their participation? Obviously, they're, they're not logically assessing the sport of rodeo. But what are their reactions when it comes to these events that they participate in? So it, it is a question that I think we can understand at some level, and it's the subject of a really interesting new study published in the journal Applied Animal Behavior Science. And, and it adds some really interesting insight into all of this. Joining us to talk more about this research, very pleased to welcome to the program uh, here this afternoon, Ed Pager, who is uh, Anderson Chisholm Chair of Animal Behavior and Welfare, member of the Calgary Stampede's Animal Care Advisory Panel. Ed, so great to have you with us here this afternoon. Welcome to the program. Thank you very much, Rob. Good afternoon. 
Give us a bit more of the background on, on this this research, because, you know, this kind of came together over, over a long period of time, and it was quite a considerable effort here. Tell us more about it. Well, I first became interested in the issue of um, uh, the welfare of animals at the Stampede when I came to Calgary about 10 years ago now. And I was really struck by the different perspectives that I was hearing about the Calgary Stampede and about the welfare of animals at the rodeo. We had, on one hand, people who follow the rodeo and think the animals are well looked after, believe the animals are more born to buck and, and, and like to perform. And we have other people uh, in the public who were saying that the animals are very mistreated. Uh, it's, a, it's a terrible sport, that the animals don't like it at all, and that the welfare is, is very, very poor. It seemed to me that that was an interesting question because as an animal behavior scientist, what I do is actually try to study the behavior of animals in these <clears throat> types of situations. And I thought it was a question that we might be able to answer, a question about uh, do animals find performing at the rodeo to be aversive? It wasn't nearly as easy as we hoped. It took quite a long time to kind of generate the project and develop the project. Um, but, uh, you know, we, needed, we need to have some data to fill in the, 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 the discussion around the use of animals in rodeo, as well as the use of animals for all types of other activities as well. Yeah. Yeah, it, 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 I mean, it's a fascinating question to me. And, and, you know, I could take the example of my dog. You know, my dog likes to play fetch. It's pretty clear that that's an activity that my dog is enjoying based on, you know, kind of what we understand about animal behavior and, and how certain emotions, I guess, if it's right to call it that, are, are manifested. So that's a real simplistic kind of example of that. So when it comes to, to say, horses, for example, there's, there's a need to sort of have a baseline understanding of horse behavior and how that manifests. And then I guess to go a step further and, and try to examine that in the context of these events, I mean, how do you go about measuring something like this? Well, it's really interesting. The whole area of animal welfare science and the areas around the behavior of equine animals of horses um, has really developed over the past you know, 20, 30 years. We understand much better certain indicators of behavior. What we did is um, we, well, we actually looked at about 116 horses over three years. We looked at uh, novice animals in the saddleback, uh, uh, saddle bronc and bareback, as well as experienced animals in both those events as well. And we looked at how the animals were behaving when they were being loaded into the uh, into the chute. So all the way from the back pens where they were being handled and moved up into the actual bucking chutes right before they perform. And that's kind of where we stopped. We kind of followed the animals all the way along there. We know that certain behaviors are indicating that animals are more reactive or associated with fear and stress. So we actually focused on those type, specific types of behaviors. So what you can do is you can look at a large range of behaviors such as moving back and forth within a chute, whether they're tail swishing, whether they're uh, defecating, uh, they'll show lip chewing, they'll increase their eye white when it's associated with fear, they'll start pawing at the ground, kicking, head tossing, you know, rearing in the chutes, those types of things. And we think those are all kind of escalating in terms of the reactivity and the amount of, of fear the animals might be experiencing. One other point I wanted to mention as well, because, uh, you know, this involved uh, Dr. Temple Grandin, uh, among other people, and, and certainly I think people would be familiar with, with Dr. Grandin, renowned animal welfare expert. So just a point on that and, and involving Dr. Grandin and, and some of the others who were involved in this. 
Well, I've known Temple Band for a number of years, over 20 years now. We've served on numerous committees. Um, I was a professor down in the States and served on McDonald's committees with her and worked with, uh, was able to uh, be with her on some of her audits of different slaughter plants and things like that. And when I started thinking about the question dealing with the rodeo animals uh, and the movement of these animals, uh, Temple was the obvious person to ask for advice as she had and a lot of work on how easily animals move through a uh, slaughter plant system and the transportation of animals, et cetera. And in fact, she came up to the stampede and visited and we kind of designed the study together. And a lot of the scoring that we used and the approaches that we use are exactly the type of things that Temple did uh, and some of her work on on uh, slaughter plants and the movement of the animals there to, to kind of assess how well the animals were moving through the system. Okay, so let's look at what this study found then. Um, so what, what are the conclusions here? What, what can we conclude about animal behavior in this context and, and how they feel or what they're experiencing during rodeo events? So what we found was that when it came to the loading of the animals, uh, we found that about uh, 70% of the horses actually balked. I mean, they were difficult to move into the system easily. But really, they only did that uh, only really did that once. Um, we found that most of the behavior of these horses, was, of the balking behavior, the, of the difficulty in moving forward, was really due to the presence of people or due to the design of the equipment. So um, sometimes you can have equipment that has uh, poor sight lines for animals, so the animals have to, you know, if they can't see where they're going, if they have to make a sharp right-handed turn, they don't really know what's, uh, what they're turning into, um, and so that m- m- will make them slow down. The other interesting component, though, was that the presence of people, people hanging around, also made the animals uh, slow down and balk and not move easily. Um, you always have to remember that although these animals are used at you know, 10 to 12 rodeos a year, for most of the time, they're out at a ranch in Canada, Alberta, not really seeing an awful lot of people. So a lot of these animals... Um, aren't used to having a lot of people around. So when you have people near the loading area that are there to maybe help move the animals forward uh, in case they, there's some difficulty or they're just uh, watching the loading procedure, um, it's actually making the loading much more difficult. And so that's one of, the, that's one of our findings is that the presence of the people in the design uh, is, really, uh, is a really important component of that. We also found that the behaviors... Um, when the animals were in the chutes, the most reactive behaviors were when the cowboys were actually adjusting the tack or putting tack on the animals. And we don't really know clearly whether this is some sort of um, anticipatory behavior or if it's some sort of escape behavior. I mean, the animals may be anticipating bucking, looking forward to it. The tack adjustment may be making the animal maybe kind of misinterpreted as a um, as a performance cue. It's time to go. I got to get ready to go. Or they may not like it very much at all. Um, so, but it is very very difficult to know because of the of the of, of the different types of motivations that might be involved. But what we were really struck by as well is that we don't see a lot of. Uh, consistent escape attempts. Uh, mm-hmm. We don't see animals balking numerous times. We don't see animals trying to get out of the chutes. We don't see a lot of reactivity at all in the chutes unless there's people around and it's getting very close to the, to the actual bucking event. The other thing we found in the study was that the um, experience of the animals made a, made a huge difference. The stampede was fantastic in terms of allowing us to have access to records uh, so we could look at how experienced these animals were at the stampede. And what we found is that the 
um, the more experienced animals show less reactivity than the novice animals. Um, and we think this is probably due to habituation. The animals learn uh, what's going to happen to them. Or the other component could be that it could be something like learned helplessness, which is a behavior animals show when they don't have control over their environment and their situation, and there's nothing they can do about it. They basically kind of give up. I mean, the same thing happens with, with in human psychology as well, something called learned helplessness. However, <clears throat> we don't really think it's learned helplessness because the animals were so reactive when the, when people were by them and, and the attack was being put on. Usually, if it was learned helplessness, the animal wouldn't show very much at all. So we do think that there's some learning going on, and the animals are actually habituating to, um, to being... In, uh, at these events. So we take these findings in. Is is are there ways in which you know some of this could be implemented? What what are the the implications then for you know for for how the rodeo conducts business? Yeah, so these are things that, many of these things are things that can be addressed. So, I mean, when you talk about difficulty in loading or having a lot of people around, you can try to control that to some extent. And the, and the, and the, the Stampede's already made some effort to do that. Um, uh, they have put up a large kind of a, a large tent structure to cut when the animals are being loaded so that the the animals aren't distracted by a lot of the people that are up in the stands area or on the bridges just back in back behind the uh, entrance to the to the arena so that's really helped in terms of uh, calming the animals down um, when it comes to design features it's kind of more of an equipment call so uh, we'll be chatting with the um, animal care advisory panel and the calgary stampede executive about what type of changes could be made there when it comes to putting tack on the animals um, that is part of the part of the event there's not a lot you can do there but you can probably decrease the number of people that are hanging around the heads of these animals uh, prior to the just just prior to the um, to the performance to the bucking be, uh, occurring um, and kind of try to limit that as much as possible all right, and I guess we'll also wait. Hopefully, good news regarding the stampede itself this summer. We'll see what ha- what um, fate has in store for that. But Ed, we'll leave it there for now. Appreciate you making some time for us here today. Perfect. Thank you very much for the opportunity. All the best. Take care. Uh, there you go. That is uh, Ed Pager, uh, Anderson Chisholm, uh, Chair in Animal Behavior and Welfare, manager or rather member of the Calgary Stampede's Animal Care Advisory Board. So, uh, really interesting look at you know try to understand as best you can. You know the experience of all of this on, on the animals themselves, and and to learn from that and and make improvements to the sport. Now, look, I mean, you know, those who want rodeo abolished, that's you know, I don't think they'll be convinced. But you know, kudos on on the stampede for taking some leadership on this issue. All right, we'll take a quick time out here, back to wind things down on a Monday afternoon, right after this. Welcome back, Rob Ridge with you here, seven seventy CHQR. So again, and, and I know there's been a lot of questions. Well, really, ever since uh, you know the news broke that uh, Danielle was was going to uh, move on uh, to step down from the show and move on to other things. So what was going to happen next? And perhaps then some some curiosity heading into this morning. Uh, so I'm going to be filling in for uh, the next two weeks. I'll be back at my time slot starting Monday, March eighth. So what will you hear in this time slot on Monday, March eighth? Well. I don't know. To be honest, I actually don't know. Uh, perhaps there are some people who do. I guess the best I can say at this point is to stay tuned for more on that. So for those uh, still wondering. Uh, by the way, a couple of things we're watching this afternoon here. Uh, it looks as though once question period is wrapped up in Ottawa, uh, a vote is set to take place on a conservative motion. 
Now, again, motions aren't really binding necessarily. It's sort of just Parliament expressing its will on an issue or its, its opinion. But this, this is a pretty important one. Uh, a vote taking place in Parliament this afternoon in favor of a conservative motion that would formally label China's treatment of Uyghur Muslims as a genocide. Now, there are already numerous Canadian political leaders and, and politicians from all parties, mind you, who say, yes, look, it's time to, to start referring to it as that because that's what it is. The United States has taken that position. Obviously, there are implications for all of this. If we recognize that a genocide is taking place, international conventions, uh, conventions compel us to respond. What is this government prepared to do? It appears as though the government's inclination is to just put its head in the sand and, and not address this, not take a stand, not even acknowledge uh, all of this. Uh, word that uh, the prime minister and his cabinet will abstain from this vote. So not even the, the courage to take a stand one way or another. They're going to abstain from the vote. Now, that's the cabinet. So it sounds as though liberal MPs who are not in cabinet are still going to have an opportunity to to have a say on this. What's interesting, though, is that this has uh, all party support. All opposition leaders have indicated that their parties are going to vote in favor of this motion. So it's going to come down to how many liberal MPs are prepared to vote for this. So this could prove to be pretty interesting. Now, again, the obvious hypocrisy here is that in 2019, the prime minister seemed pretty comfortable with declaring that Canada was guilty of genocide, and not a historic genocide, but an ongoing genocide, which came out of the, the uh, Truth and Reconciliation Commission and implementing uh, all of those recommendations. You know, look, as, as I said at the time, and a lot of people were saying at the time, is that really helpful to reconciliation? Is that really helpful to us moving forward to say that there is an ongoing genocide in Canada? You could probably make a credible historical argument that uh, something akin to a, a cultural genocide happened, that maybe that's one way of describing uh, the approaches uh, of the past with regard to residential schools, as an example, and, and other things you can point to. But it just didn't seem to have a lot of credibility with a lot of Canadians to say that Canada is involved in an ongoing genocide. Yet the prime minister acknowledged that point. And then we ended up having a federal election where nobody talked about it and how surreal that was. That hang on, Canada is involved in an ongoing genocide and yet we're going to have a federal election where we talk about free camping? Really? So it felt disconnected from reality at the time. And so now we've got this bizarre situation where uh, the prime minister is refusing to acknowledge an actual ongoing genocide. But he certainly set a precedence for lowering the bar when it comes to applying that term. And you might have heard his comments last week where he's worried for the, uh, that exact reason, that we got to be careful about using that word. We don't want to water down the word. But, well, maybe you should have thought of that a couple of years ago. So it'll be interesting to see what comes of this. Again, it's, it's not a binding motion necessarily, but it, uh, you know, certainly China, I think, will be paying attention. So if this passes, even if the cabinet abstains, you know, there, there's likely to be some fallout from that. But we can't allow that sort of pressure, that sort of bullying 
to deter us from acknowledging the reality of what's going on there. Now, the other possible implication here is, what does it mean then for Canada's participation in the Olympics? 12 months from now, February of 2022, Beijing is set to host the world at the uh, Winter Games. Can we in good conscience go? Can we send Canadian athletes there? And especially if we acknowledge that the country hosting the Olympics is guilty of an ongoing genocide, how on earth can we be a party to this event and, and them hosting it? So there are implications on that, that side of it. But, uh, you know, we got we to gotta show some principle. We got to show some, some backbone when it comes to these matters. And uh, unfortunately, it doesn't appear as though the government's prepared to do that at this point. So we'll see how that vote plays out this afternoon. We'll luckily have uh, more on that uh, coming up on the program tomorrow. Uh, Meanwhile, speaking of what's happening abroad, we're also going to talk about the situation uh, in Myanmar. Obviously, a lot of concern about what's uh, unfolding there. We'll talk about that tomorrow. Also, Australia taking on Facebook. It's not going so well at the moment. Uh, But it's still an approach that Canada seems intent on emulating. We'll get into that coming up on the program tomorrow as well. So that'll do it for us here this afternoon. Angela Cocott standing by. She'll be filling in for me uh, for the next uh, couple of weeks. I'll be filling in for, well, we don't know who, but uh, I'll be in for the next couple of weeks, including tomorrow, 930. Talk to you then. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.